Welcome to Living Word Ministries with director and Bible teacher, Debbie Blank. Each week, Debbie examines current events through the lens of end times Bible prophecies. Please visit our website for information and past programs at livingwordministry.org. Now let's open our Bibles to focus on truths from God's Word with Debbie Blank. When I attended a funeral several years ago, the pastor of a mainline denomination made the following statement, no one can know what heaven is really like. Certainly, we can't really know what heaven is like until we go there. However, the Bible clearly lays out who God is and what his heaven is like. In the book of Revelation, there are several chapters dedicated to giving us a glimpse of heaven and more importantly, the character of God. I mean, certainly we have chapters four and five and we have chapters 21 and 22 that are all about heaven. And then we have different glimpses in between. John is given the privilege of being one of the very few in scripture of going where no man has gone before and living to tell about it. Now, Paul did in Isaiah and Ezekiel and some other people, but not many people have gone there and told us about it. John has, and he's going to continue to tell us about it as we read Revelation 4. I'm Debbie Blank, looking forward to seeing God and heaven through these pages of scripture. And I'm co-host Jackie Sailors. I Can Only Imagine is a song by the Christian group Mercy Me. What has always struck me about this song is the absolute awe the songwriter experiences as he attempts to imagine and describe what it will be like to be in heaven. Today, as we look at Revelation 4, we will see the Apostle John experiencing incredible awe as he attempts to explain in human terms what he actually was allowed to see in the Spirit when he is called up to the very throne room of Almighty God. What an experience that would be. John even gives us a glimpse in Revelation 4, 1, which we talked about last week, when he says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Oh, how amazing to get that glimpse of heaven to see God calling him up there. And again, as we spoke last week, the only people that are going to have that privilege are the people who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, surrendered their lives to him, made Jesus our Lord, our master, and chosen to follow him on this earth. Those who do not, according to John 3.16, will perish. So there's two different kinds of people going two different kinds of places. And here, John is going to heaven and he's going to give us a glimpse as to what this heaven is like. John is able to communicate it. And clearly God wanted us to see this picture of him. I think God wants John to see his heart, to see where he is and what's going on in heaven, to show the glory the holiness of God, the justice of God before we see him pour his wrath as being the righteous judge under this mankind who's rejected him. He's opening heaven to those who love and trust and believe in him. He's showing what he has to offer to his bride, the church, before anybody else has to go through judgment. So we talked a little bit about that last week. The Spirit shows John what's in heaven, and we need to open our spiritual eyes in order to go along with this and understand the divine things that really exist that he's attempting to describe in human terms. I love the way you say open our spiritual eyes, because that's what we need to do. It's the Spirit who is our teacher. 
He's the one who opens our eyes. This is a, a spiritual situation where we're seeing God, because remember, God is spirit, where we're seeing him through John's eyes. If we're not paying attention to have our deeper relationship with God and get to know him better and see his character, see why he's doing what he's doing and what his heart is, we're going to miss all of that. And having spiritual eyes is important. We're not talking about eyes that look at things symbolically and we look at a passage and try and interpret it from our own interpretation. We're talking about being one with God in the spirit to understand his words. Yes, he's describing things that really exist, but he's having to do it in our language to try to communicate with us. So we're gonna go along with words like like and as, as those are probably inadequate words to try to describe the brilliance of what he's seeing in the throne room of God. It's like us trying to describe the Trinity. We use stories such as an egg, where you have the shell, the white, and the yolk. We use examples of I'm a mother, a daughter, and a wife. But those don't adequately, truly explain what the Trinity is. And John can't really explain except through his first century eyes as to what he sees and through the teaching and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So it's not surprising in Revelation 4, 2, that it starts out by saying, immediately I was in the Spirit. Immediately the idea of quickness. When it's time, God makes his plan known and he takes care of it and it happens. And here it's happening immediately after the church age. So that tells us, again, that quickness after the rapture that we talked about last week that we get from Revelation 4.1. After that, John's seeing this, which will then open the door to the tribulation period. And he says, immediately I was in the spirit. What does it mean in the spirit? In Revelation 1, I was in the spirit and God showed how Jesus is described and the other things. Now we're seeing he's in spirit as he's understanding heaven. So I went and looked at a few scriptures just to get an idea of what it means to be in the spirit. In John 14 through 16, and Jesus gives us a real detailed understanding of the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 16, I'm going to ask my father and he's going to give you another helper that he may be with you forever. It tells us in verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. That's very significant. You see, our spirit works with God's spirit to teach us about God so that we can understand him in ways that we couldn't because we can't see God. We can't touch him. We can only read about him. We can only know about him as his spirit bears witness with our spirit as to who he is. In the spirit, he has this experience and it says, come up here, which infers a change of location. So whether that is an out of the body experience or whether it's a spiritual visitation of some sort, he finds himself in the throne room in heaven. He's standing there and there is a throne which means there is a ruler and there is someone sitting on the throne. He's not telling us right away. He's just kind of leading us the same way he experiences it. He who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. So our first description of this ruler on the throne, the he, which is God, is he's like, we have the word like, a jasper stone and a sardius. What's a jasper stone and what's a sardius? Well, first, before I explain that, in John 1.18, we're told nobody has ever seen God. So the only aspect 
that we have description of God is through Isaiah or Ezekiel or here in Revelation, which gives us a general understanding. Now, it doesn't say he saw his face. And by the way, when we say face, that's an anthropomorphism which means that we equate to God our own characteristics. Sometimes the Bible will say, God holds us in the palm of his hand. Does God really have a hand? No, God's spirit. No, he doesn't. But God uses terminology that we can understand because we have hands. So when I say John doesn't see his face, it's because God doesn't have a face, God's spirit. But what John does see, as you said, is a throne, the power. And we have to remember in Isaiah 6, Verses one through six, Isaiah saw God too. It says in verse one, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe, filling the temple and seraphim stood above him, each having six wings and with two, he covered his face and with two, he covered his feet and with two, he flew. And the one called out to another saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. The whole earth is filled with his glory. So we see a similar passage here to what we're seeing in Revelation. And that is that the throne is in heaven and there is one who is seated on it. And we know that would be God the Father. And this throne is described so uniquely. It says that he who was sitting on it was like a jasper stone. Jasper is a color. In Revelation 21, 10 and 11, we see that mentioned again. There it says that the holy city of Jerusalem comes down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. So it tells us that jasper is like crystal. It's clear. You can see through it. So the one seated on the throne had that appearance. He also had the appearance of a sardis, which is more of a reddish color. And there was a rainbow above the throne of rainbows. God promising he's never going to destroy the earth again by flood. Also, it talks in Ezekiel about a rainbow being the glory of the Lord. And then it says like an emerald in appearance, which of course we know is green. What's he describing here? Is he describing colors? So we'll see a colorful heaven. I think it goes beyond just the colors, because when you're talking about something that's crystal clear, that's pure, you're talking about holiness. When you talk about Sardis, the red, you're talking about redemption. When you think of a rainbow, again, the glory of the Lord from Ezekiel. And then an emerald, well, an emerald is a light green, which recognizes God's mercy. So we see attributes of God in heaven, along with the colors that are mentioned here. And when you mentioned the word brilliance, and you look at what the Jasper Stone is described as sometimes like a diamond, and when you mention facets, there are facets in the diamond and in the ruby and in the emerald. So I think of brilliance. So the glory of the Lord, you think of light, let there be light, God is light, he's the source of all light. I think of that brilliance, that perhaps we can't see God through that brilliance. It's something where in the Old Testament we were told you couldn't look at God. You know, Moses wanted to see God, and he said, no, because I'm going to have to cover myself or you'll die if you look at me. He was in the burning bush. He was represented by different things. But the brilliance of what it must be like to be in the presence of God in the throne room of heaven is probably nearly indescribable. 
perhaps that's why God allowed John to see this and describe it to us, because no mortal person could ever see this and be able to describe it. It would be too brilliant. It would be like looking in the sun. That's the way it is with John. And yet God let him see it so he could describe it to us. The brilliance, the majesty, the awesomeness of God that no man has seen. God doesn't just tell us about himself throughout all of scripture. Here he's showing us who he is and that he is real. And he's just waiting for us to come up there and be with him. And then we find in Revelation 4, 4, that around the throne, there's 24 thrones. And upon the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. These are not angels. These are people. Somehow, some way, 24 people seated on thrones. How do we know that? Well, first of all, they're called elders. In scripture, elders are always people. They're leaders of the churches doing his work. Also, as we look here, we see that they're clothed in white garments. The best way to interpret scripture is through scripture. So if we go to Revelation 19.8, we're told it was given to the bride, which is the believers in Jesus Christ, the church, to clothe herself in fine linens, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So that gives us the idea here that these 24 elders have been judged by God. They are clothed with white garments, the righteous acts of the saints. And then they have golden crowns on their heads, which are victor's crowns. Stephanos, scripture talks about. So they are ones who have overcome to the point of being victorious. Now, who are these 24? Are they 12 apostles and the 12 tribes of Israel? We're not told about that. We do know that according to scripture, that man is going to judge angels in 1 Corinthians 6, 3. So if we're going to judge angels, these can't be angels. They have to be people from the earth who are now in heaven, who would be worthy enough to have a throne around the throne of God. And again, it's through the grace of God. That throne with the rainbow around it, you said the rainbow was that promise that God would not destroy again. That's grace. When we hear in Scripture about the throne of grace, it's coming before the throne of grace. And not only does he give grace, but he gives rewards. And those crowds are rewards. So that's something that they'll be casting down later on in Scripture. But as we look at the throne, we see these wonderful sights, but we also hear sounds. It says, out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. What does that represent? Oh, I tell you, wouldn't that be something? Think of God and all the power that's coming out of there. I would think peals of thunder would be frightening, but that's how it is to us on earth. It's not to God in heaven. And flashes of lightning, it just shows the brilliance of God, the majesty of God, the creator God that we see here all around the throne. There is nobody else in the whole world that's ever been described like this. And then it says there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Who are the seven spirits of God? We talked about them in chapter one. It represents the Holy Spirit from Isaiah chapter 11, verse two, where it says the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength and the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So we talk here about the seven spirits representing the Holy Spirit. In chapter one, we'll see it again in chapter five. We saw it in chapter three also. Verse six tells us before the throne, there was also, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. So we have another description 
Then we look at that sea of glass, and it's in the center and around the throne. There are four living creatures there, full of eyes in front and behind. Speaking of scary, I think these (laughs) look a little bit scary, but there are good descriptions that have a meaning. So it's not just what he's seeing, but the meaning behind it. Right. And we see these four living creatures throughout the book of Revelation. They will be the ones opening the seven seals. They'll be the ones opening the final bowl judgments. God uses these angels or these living creatures specifically. And they are actually very well described in Ezekiel chapter one. Not exactly, but scholars think that they are the same beings just described a little differently. They're they're described as having wheels on their feet. But these four living creatures, it says, are full of eyes in front and behind. And the first creature was like a lion and the second creature like a calf. And the third creature had a face like a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. So what do you see in there? You see a lot of likes, which means John's trying to describe what these living creatures look like. And it's very hard for him to do it. The fact that they're described as a lion, a calf, a man like a face, a flying angel. Well, you can read a hundred commentaries and you'll get a hundred different opinions on what that means. Scripture does not tell us what it means here or in Ezekiel. It just gives us descriptions. One commentary, John MacArthur says that these living creatures, they're powerful, they're strong, like the lion. They're humble, like the calf. They're rational beings, like man, and they're swift, like angels. He's saying that John is describing these with their characteristics, their qualities that they have to do God's service and to worship God. It mentions two different times that they're full of eyes. They have eyes in front and behind. Maybe it means that they have the ability to see everything. A lot of people will describe these as the lion representing the gospel of Matthew because Jesus is the lion of Judah and the calf being the gospel of Mark because Jesus was a servant. Of course, Luke would represent the man because Jesus was the son of man. And finally, the gospel of John dealing with the deity of Christ represented by the eagle. That's a possibility, but I'm not quite sure how that would fit in here because Jesus is not the living creatures. So we have to be careful how we interpret these because scripture does not interpret them. And that's where we get our interpretation is from scripture. It goes on in verse eight to say, and the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings are full of eyes around and within, just as you mentioned, and day and night They do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. Now that's where you see the importance of the four living creatures. It's not who they are. It's not what these descriptions represent. It's what they're doing. Can you imagine in heaven, they never cease to say. So a hundred percent of the time in heaven, these four living creatures are worshiping God. That's going to be something, especially as we get into the middle of the tribulation, we find out there's silence in heaven for half an hour. How is that possible when these living creatures are worshiping him all the time? Think of the term worship, what that means when they're saying, holy, 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 they're praising God. But what does worship mean to you? What does the word worship mean? It has to do with acknowledging the worth of something. And we know in scripture that that he is worthy. The Bible talks all the time about how God is worthy. And we'll find out too that worthy is the lamb as we get into more of this book of Revelation. But they're worshiping him 24-7. 
Can you imagine what that would be? The inspiration. I kind of think it's like they're so inspired they can't stop. He is so wonderful. He is so amazing. They can't take their eyes off him. They just have to continually praise him. And how did they praise him? By listing his attributes. Holy Jehovah Kadesh, pure, no defect in him, is the Lord God. Lord is curious in the New Testament. Adonai in the Old Testament means he's Lord. He's our master. He's in charge of everything. God, Theos, he's God. He is the one and only. The Almighty, it says here. Almighty is El Shaddai, meaning he's the all-sufficient one. There is nobody like him who was and who is and who is to come. Well, that's Yahweh. I am, meaning God was and is and is to come. So those are names that we see of God. Then later in verse 11, the 24 elders say, Worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. So here we find out that God is not only worthy to receive glory and honor and power, but God is Elohim, the creator of the universe. It also mentions Lord and God, again, Adonai and Theos, and because of God, they existed. That means he's the everlasting God. He's Elohim. He created everything and they existed and he exists forever. They're praising the attributes of God. What would happen in our lives if we could focus on who God really is? Not just this God in the sky or Santa Claus who gives us what we want, but on the true qualities of God. That's what they're doing. When we pray to God, our first thing that we should be doing is worshiping God for his attributes, for who he is, for qualities. Because if we will do that, it will put us in perspective as his creation, not as people who need to tell him what we want or what needs to be done. And then they give other qualities by saying that they are giving him glory and honor and thanks in verse 9. And the 24 Elders are giving him glory and honor and power. Amazing qualities of God. When we talked about the living creatures around the throne, and I said something like 24-7, they're praising God, and I had to laugh because that's my human way of expressing eternity is 24-7. But we know that it's timeless and that these living creatures and the elders are praising God for eternity He is so worthy that we acknowledge his worth and value it and celebrate it. It's an expression of our love and thanks. It's all to experience and enjoy him in his presence. And that's what's going on in heaven. So tell us a little bit more about the way that they're praising him and the things that they're praising him for. More about his qualities. Well, the living creatures praise God for his glory. Actually, so did the 24 elders. Glory is doxa in the Greek. It means recognizing God for who he is really embracing the perfection of God's divine nature, the glory of God. We think of the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God that enveloped the tabernacle in the wilderness. We think of the glory of God as representing God. It's all of who he is. If we praise God for his glory, that's every attribute really that God has to offer. And then they praised him for his honor. In the Greek, the word for honor is time. It's really pronounced time, but it's spelled time. And it means his value or his esteem. I'm not sure that we esteem God as we used to or as we should for his character qualities that we've talked about, for recognizing him as the 
holiest of holy in the heavens, who created us, who was there from the beginning, who will be there at the end, who knows everything and sees everything. We need to value and esteem him. That's why the word honor, which is used by both the four living creatures and the 24 elders is used here because of God's value. The four living creatures then worship him by giving thanks. Thanks is interesting because it's accepting what is undeserved. When we go somewhere and someone gives us something, we say thank you because they gave us something that we maybe or maybe not were worthy of. But with God, we're undeserving of everything. We're deserving of hell because man has sinned. Sin came into the world. We inherit it when we're born automatically through the sin of Adam. And then, of course, we as human beings sin because all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Because of that, we are undeserving of anything. And yet because of God's great love, his mercy, his grace, his holiness, he chose to make a way so that we could have eternity with him. That's why we should thank him. And then finally, the other one that's mentioned by the 24 elders is power. They say in verse 11 that God is worthy to receive glory and honor and power. Well, interesting because God is all power. The Greek word dunamis stands for dynamite, which we just think is all the power there is. And certainly if you multiply dynamite, then you get all power. And that's who God is. He has power of everything. Probably the most important verse in scripture comes out of Philippians 3. Paul talks about the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. Can you raise him from the dead? Nope. Can I? Can anybody on this earth? Absolutely not. Satan can't even raise from the dead. But God has that power. And that's just a glimpse of the power of God. He could make or destroy this world in a second. In the blinking of an eye, he has that kind of power. If you knew someone with that kind of power, would you honor them? Would you worship them? Well, the 24 elders saw that and they did. I want to finish up by reading verse 10 that says the 24 elders are going to fall down before God who sits on the throne and they will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns down before the throne. So every crown they've received from God, they humbly give him because he's the one who gave them the ability to have the crowns. We see a picture of heaven in here like we rarely see in scripture. Do you see the almighty God in heaven like this? Do you worship him? Do you praise him for the qualities that he has so that your focus is on him and what he wants and why he made us rather than on ourselves? God created us to know and to follow and to worship him rather than putting ourselves first. Do you realize that someday we're either going to be with him for eternity and be doing similar things, worshiping him because that's where our heart's going to be? Or we're going to spend eternity away from him. It's our decision as to whether we follow Jesus and spend eternity with him in heaven or we don't. It's very simple. All we have to do is recognize who God is. God is our supreme God of the universe who gave Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for our sins so that we might spend eternity with him. And we can know who Jesus is and what he did. But it's more than that. We have to make a decision to make him Lord of our lives, to put him first, to honor him, to worship him, to follow him. And it's very simple. It's a simple prayer of faith from our hearts by saying something like this. You can pray, oh God, I know I'm a sinner. I'm in need of redemption and I can't redeem myself. My sin will never allow me into heaven. But you paid that price by dying on the cross for me. 
as God, you rose from the dead to conquer death. And because of that, you have opened the door into heaven for all of us who will believe. You just need to pray to God and say, I believe. I want you to be Lord of my life. I commit my life to you and I will follow you. Just show me the way. That's all it takes for us to pray truly from our hearts and we will be saved and we will be able to enter into this heaven that John's talking about. I pray that you will do that today. Thank you for joining us today on Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank. This is a listener-supported show. If you'd like to support this program or contact Debbie Blank, you may do so at P.O. Box 540-003, Omaha, Nebraska, 68154, or visit our website at livingwordministry.org. Please tune in each week at this same time for Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank.